0: Coming up next on Thriving in Recovery.
1: Socrates said an unexamined life is not worth living. And, you know, that very specific phrase I resonated with. Like, at first I was like, well, what is he talking about? Like, and, and I, I mold it over and over and over. And, you know, basically what he said is, what, he, what I felt like he was talking about is people go through life like a pinball. Right? They are set off on a trajectory and they just wait for some stimulus to send them in a different direction. And they don't understand the effect they have on other people and other people have on them and the paradigms that are created through their childhood and trauma. Like, they really don't understand why they keep not making it to where they want to go. So I, I was largely impacted by that. I just started paying attention, so much so that I didn't even speak for a month just so I could listen.
0: Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Thriving in Recovery, where we dive deep into stories of transformation, growth, and the power of community. I'm your host, Bryce, alongside my co-host, Justin, and today we have a truly special guest with us, Rule Hunt. Rule's journey is nothing short of incredible. From facing life's toughest challenges to developing a mindset rooted in service and gratitude, he's a living testament to the power of resilience and positive thinking, so, sit back, relax, and get ready to be inspired. Let's dive in.
1: Hey, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Bryce, for having me. Hey, yeah. Uh, so,
0: give us a brief overview of what led you
1: to go to prison. Not a brief. <laughs> yeah, how do I do that? Um, I think that. You know, I used to joke with people that I was born in DRDC. Um, What's DRDC for those that don't know? DRDC is the diagnostic unit for prison. So it's where you go at the beginning of your prison sentence. Really, my journey um, of incarceration started when I was 11. I got locked up um, in a mental hospital when I was 11 years old. And pretty much throughout my life, I was either in addiction or incarcerated or both. I did juvenile life. It started with, you know, like many other people, I had a abusive childhood home, um, and I learned how to deal with things through anger and violence. And so in my youth, that's what I did. I numbed the pain with drugs and alcohol, not so much alcohol, but drugs, um, and got incarcerated several times. Um, I emancipated when I was uh, 17 years old left a group home, got out on my own, quickly started using drugs again. Methamphetamine was the drug of choice. I caught my first felony when I was 18 years old. I was in and out of county jail. I spent a year and a half in Jefferson County. I did some time in Denver County. I did some time in Arapahoe County. I did some time in uh, Adams County, you know, maybe six months out at the most at that point in time. And it culminated um you know the, the matthews got worse and you know you get to this place where you're completely insane and on december 4th of 2000 i got in a shootout with the highway state patrol on i-25 downtown denver took a shot at the helicopter filed, fired multiple rounds at the pursuing officers and eventually it culminated into a 48 year sentence as a young kid 24 years old with a 50 year sentence for attempted murder on the police, I thought my life was over. I thought that was it. Um, And I went into prison with that mentality. I felt like I had to stake my ground, right? Like, you know, I was a young little dude. And so I went in there with a chip on my shoulder trying to prove something. Um, But eventually that, you know, you grow up and you realize that the environment that you're in is bullshit. You know, the people around you are following a script that was given to them by people that are long gone um and everybody is following this ideology that really nobody believes in um and i had a couple of things that happened in prison that really gave me a paradigm shift and i decided i was going to get out of prison i didn't have any reason to believe that that was a real thing because you know i had 50 years and at the time when you they weren't letting people out on parole like you wouldn't get out on parole your first time pretty much ever and then if you had a violent con- crime you may see the parole board five or six times before they let you out but if you have a violent crime against the police they're not letting you out um, so i i decided i was going to get out i had no reason to but i didn't know what that looked like i've been in trouble my whole life i had been in and out of incarceration and in addiction and i've dealt with everything through violence And I didn't know what to do. I didn't trust the prison system to help me like learn anything or grow or figure out. But I knew that it was me that was causing these problems. Like my childhood abuse wasn't there anymore Um, and I didn't have anybody else to blame. And taking responsibility was a major paradigm shift for me. Like, you know, none of those people are still here. It's just me and I'm still getting in trouble. So I went to the library. And I figured philosophy was the place to look, right? Like, those, how old were you at this point? Like, how
0: long into the and into your sentence was this?
1: Um, I was probably nine years into my sentence when I had a couple of stimuluses in prison really change my um, paradigm about what I was doing. And um, another, I had another incident that really reinforced it. And so I just went to the library and I started reading Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Friedrich Nietzsche and each of them started to teach me something different, um, and it opened me up to the possibility. It really changed my paradigm about people in general. Um, I was so hateful and judgmental, um, at the time that it opened me to the possibility. And I started engaging in some of the things that the prison system had. I got involved in the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I took that class and, you know, I, I was coming into the ideology that everybody cuts corners Um, They take the path of least resistance. And the only way to grow is to step outside of your comfort zone. So I started doing the hard thing. And when I started doing the hard thing, that meant engaging in the program. You know, prison has a bunch of tough guys and, you know, they've got their chest out, but everybody's really running around scared there. And like when they go to those programs, they're so worried about what everybody else is thinking about them. They don't put themselves out there. They don't ask questions. They don't answer questions and because they're afraid to be wrong and people to judge them. So I did the opposite of that. I put myself out there. And in that process, I really realized that I had an ability to take information and translate it in a way that other people can understand. By the end of that class, people were asking me questions instead of the people that were teaching it. And I was still a student in the class. Um, And one of the things that that taught me is it really feels good to help other people. I had been destructive my entire life and done nothing but tear everything down and have, I was filled with so much hate. Um, And so it really started to make me feel good. So I really leaned into that and I became a core group member in the seven habits and I started teaching it and it felt good. I started to like feel like I deserved to get out of prison. And what I realized quickly was that, you know, there's only a small amount of people that come to this group and it's not a big enough opportunity for me to really make a change in my environment. And I had decided at this point in time that I wasn't going to be a product of my environment. I was going to change the environment around me. Um, So I expanded. I started a newspaper called the Serving Times in prison. Love that. And um, I got everybody involved from all walks of life, and I would encourage them to write what they are passionate about. And it really kind of changed the conversation in prison, and it really opened things up for people to start connecting in a different way. You know, there's still that really ingrained um, programming that's in prison that was a barrier for a lot of that, Um, but it, it catapulted me into the ability to create in prison, which is something that's not really promoted. Right. And so I started doing public speaking in there. So I would speak to all of the new uh, guards that would come in and everybody that was about to get out. I would do presentations on the AO unit where I was at. I would go speak to the new new uh, prisoners that would come in. And, you know, it, that built me some influence in the prison. And at some point in time, the... Colorado Department of Corrections realized that 95% of everybody incarcerated has an outdate, and that lock them up, throw away. The key ideology is derelict um, because people are getting out and they're driving on the same streets. They're driving drunk. They're killing people. They're moving in next door to your grandma. And so the condition in which they get out is paramount and they came to me And they said, hey, we want to create a program that helps people reintegrate back into society. And I was like, great. What does that look like? And they said, well, we want to create a unit. This is when reentry first started, um, the reentry program. We want to create a unit where people go who are six months to getting out. And we want to move you and a couple of your friends in there to change the conversation. And I really didn't want to do that because I'd been in there at the time, um, This was much later. I'd probably been in prison for about fifteen years, and
0: this is like five years after you took that first seven hours class. Yeah,
1: yeah. And they told me, you know, we want to move you in there. I, I still had thirty-five years left on my sentence, so living in a unit where people are getting out every day, oh shit, because I don't get to get and I'm seeing people pack up and leave every day. Right. Um, But I was already invested in the whole process at this point time, and I was bought in to really making a difference. And I had an ability to do so. So I agreed to move into that unit. And they said, we also want to create a program that helps change the mindset. Um, because at the time there was a 53% recidivism rate in the Colorado Department of within three years, within seven years, something like 76% wow. level three quarters of the population was going back. And it's just because it's, it's a training ground and it's a, totally different environment and it completely embeds paradigms that are detrimental to being able to function outside. Right. So they said, we want to create a program to help change that mindset. I said, great. What does that look like? They were like, we have no idea. We were hoping you would know. And I was like, uh, okay, well, let me uh, let me think about it a little bit. So I went back into the unit and I talked to a couple of my buddies who also taught seven habits. They're both lifers actually, and are still in prison. And, uh, I was like, you know, they're like, what are you doing? Right. You're putting yourself way out there. You're going to get thumped in the head. But I was, I wanted to be a person whose actions match their words, right? We're sitting here teaching people like, why not put some skin in the game? because there are different ideologies in prison right there's the lock them up throw away the key and when you start stepping outside of that role as a prisoner then those people who see you as just a prisoner they go on the offensive All Right. um and and you know so they helped me but they did it quietly you know they were like so we we, we had seen um weldon long you actually met Weldon yep. wrong at that event that we went to Weldon is a New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestselling author. He's a renowned motivational speaker. He's an entrepreneur. He's a a really good friend of mine, actually. Um, But he is also a philanthropist. Like he goes, you know, one of the things that he likes to do is he goes back into prison and speaks to people and stands in stark contrast to that ideology that you can't succeed after getting a felony or being in prison. And it's something that gets ingrained in you, right? Like you feel like people can see that you've been to prison and so they don't give you opportunities. They won't rent you a place or sell oh, you a house.
0: We or, both know. I mean, both Justin and I, yeah. we didn't tell you this beforehand, but uh, Justin and I both served time in prison as well. So, Hello. Yeah. So we know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so we know. Yeah. So yeah. so he, he would come in and like give these speeches about, um, you know, how good he's doing. Basically saying, you know, it doesn't matter what you've done; you can create anything. And you know he's such a powerful speaker that it it really m- made me want to read his book. So I read his book, his second book, "The Power of Consistency," is basically his ideology. Um, and I had read his book, and I started practicing the principles within it. Essentially, the law of attraction: how to manifest things into your life. And ironically, it was a blueprint. That he created in prison because he'd spent some time in prison um, to this life of success and prosperity, um, and so I, you know, I went back to him. and I said, "Well, why don't we create a program based off of this New York Times bestseller book to change that ideology?" And they were, you know, there was mixed reviews and uh, there was a lot of turmoil, um, but eventually they let me give it a shot. And so we put together a program, and they're. they're you know, one of the things that the lock them up, throw away the key side said was, well, we don't want this program based on you, right? We want to be able to take it to any prison, package it up and have anybody teach it. I want to mm-hmm. implement a prison program that's based on one inmate or three inmates. Mm-hmm. Um, so we spent a year creating like a everything. We created a PowerPoint presentation. We created videos. We created a script so anybody could pick it up and read the script, a facilitator's guide, a workbook, like we created everything. And at the end of it, they were like, um, you know, somebody said, well, what if Weldon has a problem with you guys, like taking his intellectual property and using it? And the thought at the time was, why didn't you think of that a year ago? Why did you let us spend a year working on this program? Um, so one of the facilitators, who's actually our a good friend of mine now she called Weldon and said hey we got a few guys um down here at the prison that are trying to implement your a program that they created based off your book and we want to know if we can run it and so weldon drove down to the prison in his ferrari and they shut down the visiting room and me and two of my buddies did like a presentation up at the pulpit (laughs) um Mm -hmm. about this idea of his program helping people reintegrate back into society and he loved it he funded it he even helped me teach it he came down into the class and helped me teach the program like i was up at the front teaching it and he's like oh, wait, wait you know he got all excited and he's like hold on let me show you how to do this <laughs> and he put me to shame really like um and when he was done he was like uh story sell it boys you know he, it was it was a cool moment but uh you know, we started this program and it really gained me some popularity. So the, um, ex-director of prisons, Jerry Gasco, the managing partner of Franklin Covey, um, and Weldon Long all wrote letters to the governor to get me out of prison, uh, for clemency. It didn't work. Like I, you know, governor, governor Hickenlooper denied me clemency, but they also wrote letters to the parole board and, I got paroled on my very first attempt, which is unheard of for shooting at the police, right? You don't get paroled on your first time. Um, And so I did 18 years, seven months, and 20 days on a 48-year set. Holy shit, man. Yeah. Wow. And uh, when I got out, the world had changed, right? Everything was so much different. Um, I remember like hopping off that, bus and getting in a car and I felt like I was watching a tennis match like just looking back and forth at all the world and how it had changed um I had never been on the internet I'd never had a driver's license I'd never seen a smartphone when I got out of prison and uh you know through all of that programming that I did um being involved in the seven habits um and you know loading into my subconscious um who, what, and where I want to be in life really helped me navigate a world that I was completely foreign to. Like, I didn't know how to function outside. I hadn't done my laundry in 20 years, you know? I hadn't um, had to cook my food or pay rent or I I had never sent an email. Like, I had to ask. So when, when I got out, Weldon hired me without a job for me. He was like, you know, I really respect things that you accomplished while you were in prison and I don't really have a position for you but I'm I'm gonna just hire you and I want you to kind of look at my organization and we'll figure out something I'm gonna just give you what he called grocery money until we figure out what to do with you so I got out um June 24th of 2019 so it was right before COVID hit and when I got out um I was just going through Weldon stuff and Trying to acclimate, like he flew me around. Um, he's like, you know, you you spent eleven years in one building. We got to get you out. So he f- flew me to the Poconos, and like he does these big events, and um, it was really cool to get out and move about the cabin. Um, and you know, he handed me a computer. He's like, we we work remotely, and I was like, what? I don't even know what to do with this thing. Like, I couldn't check my email. I really couldn't check my email. I didn't know how to send a text message. Um, but he handed me that computer and then when COVID hit, um, all of his teaching and speaking engagements came to an end, right? Everything got shut down. So he created an app and he essentially gave me 75,000 contacts because he's uh, he does a lot of sales training and mindset training um, in the HVAC, plumbing and electrical industry. And he'd been doing it for years, so he had all these contacts. He's like, here's a MacBook. Here's 75,000 contacts. I'm going to let you work part-time with my personal assistant. And here's a marketing team. Go sell it. And uh, it was a daunting task, right? Like, <laughs> I'm talking to the marketing team like, how do I send an email? How do I check my email? And so we had to start from there. Like, they were giving me the basics on how computers worked, essentially. So funny. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I could see their frustration. Like they were like, man, this guy's not going to make it. There's no way he's going to be able to do this. Um, but I just kept plugging away. Right. I just sat in my room and I was just on the computer. I would go down to the, you know, that genius bar and get some training and like do anything that I could to figure out how to do this. Well, within a year and a half, we built that company up to a super successful company. Um, We combined with this other company that had um, people in the industry in eight different countries, um, and we were selling something like $600,000 a month worth of the subscription to this application. Now... I'm not gonna take any credit from that. Weldon made a really, really good app that was really um beneficial to the industry that he was doing, but for me to be able to like jump in, I, I didn't know what an app was right
0: I'd sell this app. you're coming in not knowing how to send a fucking email, yeah, and you're you know getting on the ground floor of this you know fantastic business and getting to learn in real time like that's it's pretty badass
1: yeah and and you know, it was a great opportunity. He taught me so many things that I still use today. Right. Um, and we were really successful. Like six months out of a 20 years of being in prison, I bought a brand new Audi. I had a really nice house in Centennial. Like I was making really good money. I was doing, I was being really successful, but I didn't love it. I was just, I had traded a prison cell for a room where I sat in front of my computer all day. I was just in a different room. It was a nicer room, but I wasn't really doing anything and I didn't feel fulfilled. So I, I, I talked to Weldon about it and I told him, now I got to do something else. And I quit that great job and took a risk on myself. Uh, Let me back up a little bit. Um, After getting out of prison, a lot of the people that I had met, which essentially is my whole life, right? I've pretty much been incarcerated my whole life. So a lot of the guys that i would known for many years in prison were getting out and like the fentanyl epidemic is crazy and it was killing everyone. Like, all of these old tough guys that I've known for, you know, so many years in prison were getting out and either dying in motorcycle accidents or ODing on fentanyl. And I was going to all of these funerals and uh, what happened was a, a really good friend of mine, Cassidy Rhodes, um, who I thought was invincible, right? He's, um, he's, he's a trip. He was a little, little bitty wiry dude that everybody was afraid of. He was just an animal. Um, he, you know, ran from the halfway house and OD'd on fentanyl and died. And I went to his funeral and I had had enough. Like, I'm, i am I, have to do something about this. I didn't know what I can do, but I at the same time learned about peer coaching and sober living and kind of what's going on out here. And that led me to make a decision to quit that cushy job and bet on myself and start doing some peer coaching. So I joined up with, at, at the time, a friend of mine um, and started doing a little peer coaching and got involved in this um, industry. And, you know, it, it's not exactly what I had been doing in prison, but it almost the exact same thing. The, the people in prison, they struggled with drugs and alcohol too. Um, but I had been for a decade, like really working with people trying to figure out what what it is that they've got going on and how to get out of their own way. So I started doing this and I really enjoyed it and I really saw the ability to make a difference in people's lives, right? Sometimes um, they just need somebody there, and that's what we do. We meet people where they're at, which is something that's super cool. Um, Denver has a ton of resources, and there are a lot of things out there to help people in those places, but they're, they're a situation where they either catch the bus or they drive over to this thing, they get the resource, and then they're back in life by themselves, Dealing with the same stressors that got them into this situation. And so I saw an ability for us to meet those people where they're at and really make a difference, help them work through those mindset issues that cycle them back into drugs and alcohol, right back into detox, into the rehab, out and repeat. Um, and, you know, I took the lessons that I learned from Weldon, which is essentially. Designing your life, right? Most people, they get up and they get a routine going on and they think, you know, I get up, I, you know, take a shower, make some food, go to work. I've got to pay the bills, come home, got to do the laundry and it's repeat. But they don't really figure out what it is that they want to accomplish in life, right? They are focused on the vehicle and not the end result. And The thing about Weldon's program and the thing that I do now is I created a prosperity plan. It's called a prosperity plan. And essentially what a prosperity plan is, is like who you want to be as a person, right? Oftentimes people act like they are controlled by themselves, but not controlling themselves, right? Like a runaway train. Like I always do this. I don't know why I do it, but they don't really focus on why they do it. And what they can do to do different so I get up and I write down who I am as a person like I'm a man of character honor and integrity right every morning I tell myself that and I always hold the courage to do what I know is right and I consider others and myself before I make any decision and that sets the tone right like I remember every single day who I am that way I don't get lost during the day and designing your life around that right like what is it that i want to accomplish it's not i'm living to get some job just to pay the bills and make it make it by. i really want to get to an end point so figuring out what those things are and how to get there is what a prosperity plan is and you write them in the present tense right you can load that into your subconscious and make yourself believe you are that person um is
0: this something that you like learned in prison? Like, I know it, it's really, it reminds me of like SSIC, you know, taking some of these classes in, um, you know, the TC, I don't know if, did you go through TC? Mm-hmm. No. So yeah, a lot of the stuff they teach in TC is these things, right? Seeking safety, SSIC, CBT, you know, relapse prevention. And it's the same sort of model of what you're talking about right now, but it's cruel to see somebody who, you know, was in the fire. And was really able to, I mean, it's even more impressive that you, you know, kind of realized this without having gone through any of that like educational process. So that's
1: super commendable, man. That's awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the process started many years before I got out of prison, right? I envisioned these things every day. So I get up every morning and I read a, a personal commitment to myself. Um, reminding myself that I am committed to this path that I chose a long time ago and then I read through the particulars of my life like part of my program Um, so after working as a coach for a while I started my own company I own Transcendence Recovery and part of that program is teaching the same thing that I taught in prison it's essentially how to manifest things in your life not just the physical aspects but the attributes that the person that you want to be and a, a big part of that is eradicating limiting beliefs right like you know me and you went to the um symposium yep. um and i went to this i saw this lecture and it was this super like nerdy guy um and you could tell that like he was super uncomfortable be- being up there but he really knew his shit and he was talking And he didn't do a great presentation. A lot of people were not paying attention, but I was really listening to the words he said. And he said that human beings have between, I think it's 12 and 60,000 thoughts a day. And he said 80% of those are negative. And 90% of those are the exact same thoughts that you had the day before. It's cyclical. Like you're just having these constant negative thoughts over and over and over again. And, you know, even the most well-rounded people can get into situations where they start focusing on the negative. So this program really allows you to get up first thing in the morning and recenter and really focus on the direction you're headed in, not the particulars that take you to get there, like the vehicle, the job or whatever, like where you're really headed, who you want to be and what's important to you, the people in your life. Right, people are more important than things. What it is that you want to accomplish and who you want to be as a person, and teaching that in my program has really been so beneficial. Like I teach the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I'm a Franklin Covey certified facilitator. I actually teach it with uh, the parole department out here. Um, but the the power of consistency and really having each individual de- design the life. And eradicate limiting beliefs is an amazing transformation for people. And, you know, it's really hard to get people in that mindset because uh, people who have been in addiction for so long, they just have so many failures over and over and over again. And they put forth e- effort um, and they can't seem to get anywhere. It feels like they're spinning their wheels. So to get them to like dream big, and think outside of their current circumstances is really difficult. But as we go through the program and, you know, kind of sharing my story, you know, I I work with a lot of people who come out of DOC too. And they, you know, they they come out and they're like, you know, I was in DOC for two years and I just can't do this. And I'm like, bullshit. (laughs) I mean, let me tell you a story. Um, I, I spent 20 years in there and I didn't know a damn thing when I got out of here. But you can absolutely do it. And so, you know, the, the ability for me to have been in their shoes really makes the difference in being able to show them that they can do whatever it is that they want to do. And we're having quite a bit of success with it. It's, it's the thing that propels me forward. So now we're growing as a company. I've got a bunch of coaches. Um, we're doing DUI classes. I'm starting to open up some sober living houses. In the future, I want to open up a treatment program really want to create a community that, um, works with the golden thread, right? Like the whole continuity of care. Um, but also right. The the opposite of addiction is connection. So I want to create those places where people can go. One of the problems that people have in addiction is relationships. one of the biggest problems. one of the things that leads people back to relapse over and over and over again. Um, so what I want to do is create a a place where people can go and find like-minded people and not have to worry about, you know, drugs and alcohol in that environment. Um,
0: yeah, you and I both share the same vision or similar visions in the sense of, um, you know, really creating that community, creating opportunity for people to connect on a different level. So that's super cool. Um, I have a ton of questions. I know Justin has a ton of questions. Yeah, so it went
1: off for a little bit.
0: It's all good. Um, Justin, you want to start off with some questions? I know you kind of dive into some really um, intellectually backed things that I might not see. So fire them off, my guy.
2: I do. I I have a couple and just I want to take you back into prison just for a little bit and then uh, we'll talk about uh, your getting out. You had mentioned reading books, Socrates, Plato. Uh, obviously, seven habits of highly Effective people. You met Frederick Nietzsche. I would love to know the
1: most impactful book or books that you read while you were in prison. Um, you know, each one of them taught me something different, right? Socrates said, "An unexamined life is not worth living," and you know that that very specific phrase I resonated with. Like at first, I was like, "What is he talking about?" Like, and I I molded over and over and over and you know basically what he said is what he, what i felt like he was talking about is people go through life like a pinball right they are set off on a trajectory and they just wait for some stimulus to send them in a different direction and they don't understand the effect they have on other people and other people have on them and the paradigms that are created through their childhood and trauma like they really don't understand why they keep not making it to where they want to go so i I was largely impacted by that. I just started paying attention um, so much so that I didn't even speak for a month just so I could listen. Um, and really that started everything. Um, you know Frederick Nietzsche has this philosophy about being clean with yourself. Um, and one of the things that I learned, I think it's in Zarathustra uh, one of the one of the things that I got from that after reading it over and over and over again is, essentially, um, rationalization and justification. So people um, prevent themselves from getting to wherever they want to go or being the person that they want, because they make those rationalizations and justifications and alleviate themselves of any responsibility for taking a step in the direction of their dreams. That was a huge paradigm shift for me too, because I was that person that used that victim stance mentality from my childhood to justify all of the things that I was still doing in prison as an adult. Um, one of the best books that I've read that really had an impact on me was "The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People." Um, Stephen Covey has a great insight into the human condition, and you know what I what I te- tell people when I'm teaching that class is there there's no easy button in life, but Um, the seven habits gives you a structure to work within so you can be the most effective. Um, and then I think the power of consistency by Weldon Long really was life changing. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's an amazing book.
2: I was going to ask you for his last name again, so I could, I could look it up. I had Smith in my head for some reason. So Weldon Long, and what's the name of his book? The Power of Consistency. The Power of Consistency.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and Justin, like he, Weldon in uh, in the Colorado Department of Corrections, he's like, a, he's a legend. Like, you know, a lot of guys who are kind of in these spaces where, you know, you're focused on self-improvement, you know, you kind of have these certain cliques and certain uh, people in different facilities who are, you know, highly motivated and, you know, focused on building a life for when they get out of prison. And Weldon is kind of a legend in that. In that setting, so for for rule to kind of create this stuff and then be, you know, welcomed in into kind of his inner circle is is super
2: super cool. Yeah, a guys rolling in a Ferrari up to the up to the yard. I bet he's I bet he's popular. <laughs> the yeah, the, every, everybody wants to be welded. No doubt, no doubt. This prosperity plan that you—how long have you been doing that?
1: <laughs> Let's see. 2016.
2: Okay, so for quite a while before you got out, about the same amount of time in as you were out.
1: And how you read it every day is what I heard? Every day. So a, a prosperity plan is um, it's broken down into what are called consistency outcomes. They're basically the goals that you have in life, and those can be financial they can be family oriented they can be character based and then they're all written in like the present tense like i am a man of character honor and integrity um and they each have what's called consistency actions that go along with them and those consistency actions are the one or two leveraged actions that if you do on a daily basis you would most likely achieve this goal and yeah I read it every day initially I read it twice a day first thing in the morning takes about 15 minutes it's more than just reading over a prosperity plan it's really about like envisioning and connecting emotionally to that person or those things and um it's crazy how it manifests those things in your life like I have a list of all of the prosperity plans because prosperity plans change, right? You achieve that goal or some new, um, step in your life happens, right? You get out of prison or you get married or you're starting to have kids. They, it evolves constantly. Um, and I have like a, a list that I wrote out of all of the things that I've put over the years. And it's amazing how many of those crazy things that I thought I had 35 years left in prison and one of the things that I put on there is, um, I'm out of, out on parole for the very first time. Um, I, and I got out of parole on the very first time. Um, I worked with Weldon Long, helping him build a business when I was in prison and I brought that up. He was like, yeah, I really don't have any positions. right? my business is me. I go around and I teach people things and I speak. Um, and so he, he kind of scoffed at that, but you know, I I got the job. Um, one of the other things that I put on there is, uh, being married to a beautiful and trustworthy woman. And I am, you know, married to the most amazing woman on the planet, maybe a little biased, but, um, Mm -hmm.
0: you know, those were Tara's great. She'll listen to this. She is, she's awesome.
1: Yeah. She's super cool. Um, And, you know, those were fanciful ideas when I was sitting in prison for shooting at the police with 35 years left on my sentence. Um, You know, I and it's amazing the things that I've checked off the list and it's amazing the things that I have um, on the list for the future.
0: One of the key things that I think is one of the most important things, at least that I take away from that, though, is like you talk about manifesting but you said a key word in there and that's action yeah none of this shit happens unless you're taking consistent and deliberate action and so i think you know one of the things that a lot of people with the law of attraction or manifestation get hung up on is they you know they connect with that emotional sense and they visualize and they um, do half the work right but there's still the other half where you got to take action and, and really make it a
1: reality so for sure. Yeah. Like that's part of the prosperity plan. The consistency outcome has two actions that will get you to achieve that goal. And one of the um, the biggest advantages of that is like being very specific about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the human conundrum is knowing exactly what you need to do. Most people know exactly what they need to do to get wherever it is that they want to go. They just don't do it because it's a little bit easier not to. Like if you want to weigh 180 pounds and you're 250 pounds, you have to go to the gym and eat healthy, right? It's not rocket science. You know exactly what to do. Doing it is the hard part. So like waking waking up every day and reading that you do this thing four times a week for you know two hours or, or an hour or whatever. If you're telling yourself that every day, the chances of you actually going and doing those things is becomes much higher mm-hmm. right instead of having this fanciful dream and this idea about what you want to do and never taking steps to achieve it and where did you learn about the prosperity plan that was weldon yeah he uh that's that's basically what the power of consistency is about it's about creating the mindset and um You know, writing out a prosperity plan and doing what's called your quiet time ritual every day. And basically, it's just a refocusing on where you're headed in life. Um, You know, people get caught up in the close to the trees and can't see the forest. Right. Think about like how it was in the 50s where gender roles were very defined and it was the man's job to provide for the family. So he would go out and he would work his fingers to the bone and he would get so focused on providing for the family, he would neglect his family and they would leave, right? He's getting caught up in the vehicle to achieve that goal and forgets about where he's headed. So this allows you the opportunity to get up every morning and remember what the goal is actually and not get caught up in how you're going to get there.
2: Yeah, I I love it. I'm going to download his book or or I'm going to get it in some fashion here, uh, in the next little bit, or as soon as we're done with this, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. And you had said people are more important than things and go back to June 24th, 2019, you talked about all these things in the world that had changed. There's texting and emailing and, uh, I spent spent 50 months in prison. So like a fraction of what you did in the world had completely, I mean, the toilets started flushing themselves. I'm like, what is going on? <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of things that were different, but how had the relationships in your life changed over those 18 years? Seven months
1: and 20 days. Oh, man. Um, I have a huge family. So my father is number one of 12. We are 103 on my father's side. And I didn't talk to any of them when I first got locked up. I didn't have any relationships at all. I was essentially uh, fresh in prison as a young man all by myself with a 50-year sentence. Um, and, you know, through, through that growth, um, in prison and really like working on the trauma, right. You know, a lot of my trauma was based in my childhood. And so forgiveness is a super important thing. Um, so I reached out to, you know, my family members and like rebuilt those relationships, um, really just reaching out for forgiveness for me, not them uh so i could let that go because i held on to that uh victim stance mentality for so long and it didn't serve me um and that that's really what i think forgiveness is is about it's about you letting go of that shit and not letting it drag you down anymore um and through that process i just started building um all of those relationships with my family and um you know everybody loves me again <laughs> i uh i went to a family reunion shortly after i got out and there was maybe 80 of us there and um you know i had been writing and calling and people had been coming to visit me from all over the country um and you know part part of the seven habits is was really vital in that um habits four five and six are all about the public victory they're about uh relationships the understanding of the give and take and trust and like communication how to listen to people and all of that was vital in building those relationships because you know my my whole life i was in and out of prison i was absent i didn't really get to do those things that you should do with your family like i wasn't mowing my dad's lawn or helping family members move or taking somebody to the airport or just being there when something bad happened. So it, it was a long road to rebuild those relationships, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh,
2: I'm, I'm doing really well now. Yeah. I can tell you. I mean, I didn't know you obviously back then, but once you started doing the work and the seven habits and you, you change and, and people can, they can sense it before you, they even come visit you, right? They can, feel it when they're talking to you on the phone. Like we're all connected and 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 they know. Uh they might not know that they know, but they know. And so good job on doing the work and, and rebuilding those relationships that I'm sure was a hard thing to do. Uh just because of all the lack of trust I'm sure there was with your family. My brother lives on the streets. He's strung out on crystal he's in jail right now, which is actually a really good thought for him. But strung out on crystal meth and it's uh he unfortunately is is not doing the work. He's 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 in the victim mode still, and he's in his fifties. And I pray that one day he'll change. My mom doesn't think he will, but you never know; he might. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's hard.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a real difficult road. Um, and you know, I'm I'm a mindset guy, right? Like, I'm I'm all about the mindset, and that paradigm shift, um, is sometimes really difficult to get. And, you know, I sat in prison and watched people come in and out, in and out, in and out while I was there the whole time thinking, man, you know, there's there's no there's no right answer for everyone, right? There's no easy button and, you know, it's really difficult sometimes for people to get it and, you know, they get old and they're still doing the same things and not figuring out it's, it's a tragedy, you know, that's what me and Bryce... Are, are trying to make a difference in right now. It is. It is for sure. Are you, I see you got a Breck shirt on you. a skier? Uh, Actually, this is 14ers. I'm a mountain climber. It's got all the 14ers on the back okay. of Colorado. Nice. I going to say skiing's a thing. I learned to ski as a kid. I, ski,
2: I was a ski racer as a kid. I've skied my whole life. I was like, man, if you've been in prison for 20 years, not too
1: many people in prison 20 years are skiers today. Yeah. Just because it... it I, uh, I actually grew up on skis. I love skiing. Um, I didn't do it for a really long time. And when I got out, um, I spent all those years in prison, like on the weight pile doing squats. So I got out. I was 43 years old when I got out. And I went to my first ski slope. I, was, I went with um, a, a young lady at the time. And we were going skiing. And I was like, holy shit, my knees are not prepared for this at all. Um, unluckily, but, you know, fortuitously, um, she crashed on the first run uh, and that was the end of our ski trip. So I've been on one run since I've been out. Uh Um, I've been focused. One and done. Yeah, that's it. That's all you need. Yeah. Um, I would love to get back on the slopes. Uh, I'm just currently in the process of, you know, building this business. I want to
0: touch on the catalyst was there anyone in particular who kind of helped encourage you to go to that first 7 habits class
1: um yeah there there was somebody who so i was already on the path before i went to that 7 habits i had been reading philosophy um And I was, like, open to the possibility. Um, But a friend of mine, who is an amazing human being, um, he has been in prison for, I think, 29 years. Um, When we were... So I I spent most of my time incarcerated in Buena Vista. And uh, he was a gang leader in Buena Vista at the time when I was kind of running amok, too. Um, he went, ended up getting in trouble and went to CSP and I didn't see him for many years. Uh, he kind of had the same paradigm shift. Um, and he was teaching when, when I left, uh, Buena Vista, I went to the prison that he was at and he was teaching the seven habits and he had really made that change. Um, he'd come to the same conclusion that, you know, this, this whole thing is for young kids and it's all bullshit. So Um, he, he actually was like, you know, come, come to this class. And I was, I was already on the path of like doing whatever I could. I was open to anything. Um, but he was my core group member and he taught me later on. He actually helped me create that program, the power of consistency. He, um, has gotten his associates, his bachelor's and his master's degree in prison, he's actually the very first ever professor who's teaching college classes while being in prison. Wow. He works for Adams State University. Um, he's in the process. His name is David Carrillo, and he is in the process of waiting on the governor to see if he will grant him clemency. Wow. But he was, uh, he was my partner in crime in there. Um, so I asked the question,
0: not knowing kind of chronologically, um What sort of characteristics one individual might have who would sort of take you under their wing and say like, hey, but I guess that you the answer to the question was, you know, you had already kind of gone down that path. I guess what was it for you? Was there any like aha moment or, you know, breakthrough moment for you? To where, you know, there was either a circumstance or something happened to where you were like, all right, I'm fed up and now enough is enough and I want to, I want to change.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There was a couple of instances in prison. um, And I guess I'll share them. I, I, uh, so I was in prison one time and I got into a fight and I went to the hole and years before I had gotten into an altercation with this um this co corrections officer and uh he was a rookie at the time and we got into it and he was wrong and he ended up getting in trouble and they moved him out of the unit like he called responders on me they cuffed me up um they they took me down to the shift commander's office and i was i was working in the kitchen at the time and my boss in the kitchen came in there and like reamed him out and told him that he was 100 percent the wrong and that i didn't do anything wrong at all and he held a grudge against me for a long time. Years later, he became a Lieutenant. And when I went to the hole, he took my photo album. And when I got out of the hole, I, there's in Buena Vista, there's like this, it's an A&O unit now, but it, it's, um, or it's not an A&O unit now. It was an A&O unit then. So when you get out of the hole, you go there before they send you back to your general unit. And, when I got all my stuff, I noticed that it wasn't in there. But the person who had packed up all my shit had um, wrote it on the list as being in there. So I knew that he had taken it. <clears throat> and when I went up to the front, so the way that the AO unit is set up is there are two sides. So there's the east side and the west side. And you go down, and there's a bunch of cells down here, and there's a bunch of cells on this side. And then there's a big vestibule and there's two cages where the guards sit and they lock themselves in the cages and they can open the doors and shut the doors. And they basically stay in there, uh, when they're not walking around. And so I went back up, everybody else was locked down. I went and got my property and I went back up to speak with her about my property. And she called down to the property room and, you know, he was, he was being a Jerk about it. He told me that um, you know, if there was any property in there that was mine, that I got it, and that he didn't have it, and that he didn't have time to go look around, and that he was leaving on vacation, and that maybe he would look for it when he got back. And you know, it it seems like a real small thing. It's a photo album, but you know, I'd lived in this toxic, violent environment where the best thing that happens is every three months you get Jolly Ranchers, right? Like your world gets really, really small. And my photo album had pictures of like friends that I had lost. I didn't know where they were or what was going on. Old girlfriends, family members who had died. And it felt like my only bit of humanity left. And this person took it from me. And I went up to the cage and I asked her about it and she had that phone call and she hung up and she's like, he doesn't have it, you know? And I was like, fuck that call your friends. I want to fight. Like I lost my shit. Um, and I was like, call the goon squad. And years later on her first day, she was a Sergeant at the time on her first day. She was in the kitchen where I was and she was like frozen stiff with fear. And me and one of my buddies had gone over there, like made her laugh and kind of like alleviated some of the tension that she was having. And so she really showed me some grace. She was like, you know, I'm going to let you kick and scream and throw your little temper tantrum. And whenever you're done, I'll open up the gate and you can go back to your cell. But I'm not calling anybody. And she didn't do anything. I I was so frustrated because i felt completely helpless i couldn't do anything she was in a cage everybody else was locked down and i was just essentially locked in this vestibule and there was nothing that i could do and i like started crying like i was at this place of just utter helplessness i couldn't do anything and it really changed my mind like i i i <laughs> I put a lock on a belt and I was like walking around the prison system looking for this dude for, for several weeks. Um, I was going to do him some serious harm. Um, at, at the time I was still, um, you know, with the ideology that this was going to be the rest of my life. And, you know, you know, prison, prison has this way of like scripting, like you can't be a punk or nobody can take advantage of you at the time. And I felt like this dude had, like really taken advantage of me and I wanted to do something about it. Um, but it really started getting me to think about like, I'm always in these situations all the time and I can't blame it on anybody else. Um, I'm the only one still here. I'm the common denominator. This has got to be me creating this stuff. And that was, that was the, the beginning of my, my paradigm shift. Mm. Um, And then, then later on, I was uh, at the time in prison. I was involved in like this religious type group, the the Asatru's. It's like a Viking religion, Um, and you know, for a long time, it was kind of run as a kind of like a gang. Like you had to enforce rules, and I was like had been there for a long time, and I took it really seriously, and. There were a couple of guys in prison in another unit that were a part of a gang. I was not a part of a gang. And there were a a couple of guys that had another gang member who also came to the grounds, the religious grounds, who had done something that was against the prison rules. And people in prison try to get other people to handle their business for them. And you know, for a while, I was kind of enforcing some things for our small little group. And so they brought it to a religious and, you know, it's not a place where you can bring gang stuff. It's all stupid, but it's not a place where you can bring gang stuff in the first place. But their intention was to tell me about this thing that happened. So I would do something about it. And I, they, they didn't say that, but they were asking, you know, what should we do? And I told them, you know, you know exactly what you're supposed to do. These rules are cut and dry. Like you're in a gang, like, you know, it, if your, your gang member does something wrong, you have a certain set of things that you need to do to take care of that. And everybody agreed and everybody split their ways, but they didn't really want to do anything. They wanted somebody else to handle it for them. So really started talking shit from the other unit and sending messages and you know we were very segregated in that prison so the only way that they could get information to our unit was you know some of the people from my units and them worked in the same unit and so i listened to this drama for two months i really didn't say anything and then when we had our next religious ceremony you know, the, the guys in my unit were pumping me up the whole time. They're like, you know what so-and-so said, and, you know, they're talking shit, and they can't get away with that, and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, there's, there's this drama that was building for two months, and I, I went back out there with the intent of, like, handling it, right? And all of these people in my unit were on my side, pumping me up the whole time, like, talking about how fucked up it was. And I didn't say a word the whole time. So we go out there and when they open the cage and we walk in and they just start shaking their hands, like nothing happened. And there was this huge buildup and I was serious about this stupid ideology. And I saw that nobody else was. And I was like, what the fuck are you guys doing? And somebody told me, well, what are we supposed to do? Stab anybody that, you know, doesn't follow the rules? And I lost my shit. And we had a pitchfork in there. It had a welded piece at the end of it. Um, and it was for the fire, to stoke the fire with. And I picked that up and I said, I'll stab every one of you motherfuckers. And I started chasing them around with a pitchfork, swinging it around, trying to kill Peach. Oh, my Oh, my God. <laughs> And at the end, you know, the, the cops ended up coming and, you know, it was a situation. Nobody got in trouble. They didn't really see anything. People were like climbing over the gates. Um, and when I calmed down a little bit, when the cops were there, I, I sat in the corner and I thought, why Why would I risk the rest of my life for something that nobody else around me really believes in? Mm. Why am I living by this fake ideology? And it's really what crystallized my idea about how fake people are mm-hmm. in general especially following that false ideology mm-hmm. and so I you know I sat there and I was super embarrassed um, at what I had done because I'm playing a totally different game than everybody else is around me and this is what got me here in the first place right like not really living, by what I believe, by living what other people believe or what other people tell me how to be. And I always thought of myself as a leader and not a follower. But I was following this ideology and it was bullshit. And I'm ready to kill or die for it, which is crazy to me now. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I ended up leaving and that's when I decided I was going to go start reading philosophy. That's, That's the day. I went back the next week because in prison when something happens, like a lot of people pump people up. Like they're like, oh, you're going to let that dude do that shit. You know what I mean? And then they feel like they have to handle something. So I went back out there and was like, you know, I said and did some bad shit. Does anybody have any hard feelings? Like, you know, I'm I'm here. And nobody did. Like nobody had any hard feelings. But then I left that. um, And I, I really set out to focus on who I wanted to be because what I'd been doing was somebody else's shit, not mine. Wow. So pitchfork is all you need. <laughs> it's miss this. Saw true.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, um, I mean, we, first of all, I just want to say thank you for just being the person that you are. You know, we've gotten to know, know each other over the last couple of months and, uh, We're working on some projects together that i'm really excited for and really look forward to that i think this will be the first of of many episodes i think we can kind of dive into a lot of stuff i mean this was a jam-packed episode and um i want to really uncover some of the stuff that you know we touched on especially like uncovering more about your prosperity plan and how we can offer up practical tips for people how they can implement that in their own lives if they're not local or if they are local, how they can get in touch with you or I, um, same goes for Justin, you know, uh, he's doing really good work up in, in Alaska with some really cool organizations as well. And so we just want to be an outlet for people to, um, be able to get the resources and support and help that they need. Um, so I just want to say thanks for coming on, sharing your story, Um, and, you know, just sharing some insight as to who you are and the man that you become. And, um, I really look forward to what
1: the future holds for us and appreciate you, man. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on. And, um, you know, I, I also love what you do and want to contribute to everything you do. Everything you do is gold, um, and your intentions and your ethics are amazing and I'm honored to be here. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. I don't know how you get got me to tell those two stories. <laughs> I was going to
0: stop you when you were talking about it from the first, because you kind of like glossed over them. And I was like, nah, we're going to go back to that. I want to <laughs> hear a little bit about it. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but I appreciate it, man. Thank you,
2: Justin. Yeah. Thank you, Rule. I uh, love how you've taken manifesting bullshit into manifesting great things in your life. And I love that you're teaching other people to do the same. You you strike me as a master manifester, and and that's something I, st- I strive for in my life. I've already downloaded the Wealth and Long audiobook, and I'm looking forward to getting unpacking that one as soon as I'm done with the one that I'm currently on. So, thank you so much for your time today and your stories. And I look forward to getting to know you better and getting getting more into the work that you're doing today. I think it's fantastic. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, And, you know, once, once you do, if you do want to create a prosperity plan, there are some very specific tweaks that you have to make to it to make it really successful but please reach out to me i'll help you uh where can people way. find you out they can find me on my website transcendencerecovery.com. um just reach out to me there and i will follow up awesome clear man thank you talk soon